0: It's Jennifer Diane Gostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest, I've known for over a decade, she invited me to participate in an adoptee workshop at an American Adoption Congress conference many years ago, for which I'll forever be thankful for that opportunity. Her name is Pamela Hasegawa, and she easily accepts us calling her Pam. Her immense contributions to the adoption community spans over a 30-year period. Pam was born in the early 1940s in New York City. After several months, her adoption was finalized and her new birth certificate was issued to her adoptive parents. She grew to age five in Manhattan and Connecticut. And by the time she reached junior high school, her family settled in Barrington, Illinois, not far from Chicago. Her mother died when she was 12 of a massive heart attack. Fast forward to 1959, Pam's first year at college. When she signed up for creative writing, she had no idea she would be opening a door to thinking about her origins. When the professor assigned students an essay, imagining where they would be and what they would be doing four years after graduation. Allow me to introduce you to someone who still gives to the community after so many years in the trenches of working to change adoption laws and helping other adoptees navigate their way before, during, and after reunion. Her acceptance to have this conversation for a listening audience is just one example of how she believes in the importance of reassuring another person that they are not alone and that her words just might be of use to someone else. Pam, I am so thrilled to be able to record a conversation with you because I know you, I've known you for a while, and now... Others will get to hear from you, hear your words. So thank you so much. And how are you doing today?
1: Fine. I'm really happy that you invited me to do this. Must admit, I haven't done any speaking about adoption for for about three years. And uh, largely because of COVID. And, and also, I, I kind of froze up when I did have a wonderful opportunity to speak i just kind of panicked and realized that if i was going to do that again i needed to get into it gently so that's that's how i am and and i really was happy to hear from you because we've only had good experiences together and that boded well for a good conversation
0: yes Thank you. yes it's um It's a delight to know you. I know we met years ago at an AAC conference and and I would just see you through the years back then. To be in the same room with you has always been a joy. So I want you to share a part of your adoption journey, wherever you want to start and however much you want to share.
1: Okay. I was born uh, in 1942, which is probably about when the war baby era was was getting busy. My parents happened to be at a restaurant in Queens one night, and they were sitting next to a woman who was dining alone, and it turned out she was a physician. They told her she was an obstetrician gynecologist, And when they found that out, they told her that they were looking to adopt a baby and they really would like a girl. And did she know of any agencies they could go to? And so she gave them a suggestion of an agency that she had worked with for years. This doctor was the first woman to graduate from Stanford Medical School in the early 1900s. So we're talking history here. (laughs) (laughs) This is all time. They contacted the agency, and it turns out that agency only handles female babies and toddlers, which I've never heard of an agency that only handled one gender before, but this was it. And a few years ago, I talked with someone at Spence about that, and she said, yeah, it was true. They basically only handled girl babies. So they they had a you know a, a more narrow list of people interested because people who wanted boys did not go to that agency. Hmm. I found it really peculiar. That right, is frankly.
0: that's interesting. And
1: You know, longitudinally, what that means is, and I didn't think about this till I was at least 40 or 50 years old, and I started going back to Spence for background information they might have on me, what it means is that the agency had only had contact, well, how can I say this? Only had contact after the baby was born because they wouldn't waste half their energy employing people to try to match up babies with, fam- with parents if half of them were going to go down the tubes immediately because approximately half of the children were boy- boys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm so the way that translated into real life for me meant that they probably did not have much time at all to interview my birth mother because they would have only found out that she had a girl after I was born right mm. and I just thought that was that was kind of strange because in those days at least people. People didn't get what they ordered if they wanted a son or a daughter. They got what they got and uh, what nature brought them. That was a little peculiar. What I was told about my birth parents was that my mother was a radio singer and that she knew when I was born that she was ill and she was going to die by the time I turned one. Now that was a pretty a pretty hokey story because it's so out there in left field kind of. And I was always suspicious of that. So what age did you hear that story? I was probably six or seven or eight or so when she was telling me this
2: mm.
1: because I remember Her getting mad at me when I was in the maybe oh fourth grade I guess it was fourth or fifth grade I was like between eight and ten years old I got a letter from a boy that I had met that summer when I was visiting my cousins in Georgia and I was so excited to get this letter from a boy. I went in to ask my mom for a stamp because I wanted to reply to this boy I mean, whose name was Sammy. She said, what are you writing in? Who is he? Remember, I'm a kid, like I'm in the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And I said, "I said, well, I met him at Molly and Mellie Pitts' school when I was in Georgia, right before Christmas. And she just hit the ceiling and she said... You're going to turn out to be a bad girl. I'm not going to use the word she used, but you're going to turn out to be a bad girl, just like your mother was, Mm. you know, and that was the last time for a long time that I asked her any more questions Mm. because it was very harsh. So, I think I kind of buried that in a back pile of ashes in my head, and i I just went with the radio singer idea because I thought that was cool. I did love to sing when I got to high school i was I was in all the musicals that we did and the dramas as well and finally, my senior year, I had the lead in a music a musical called "Call Me Madam." And I remember waiting for one of my parents to come pick me up from the school after a performance. And I remember thinking then about my mother being, my birth mother being a radio singer. And I just got all psyched, you know. I thought, oh boy, wouldn't she be happy to know that I was just, that I just played Ethel Merman's part in Call Me Madam. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> it was so fantasy based, you know. I didn't talk about it with my parents. I may have told a friend or two about it, but I think I I was free enough to talk about it that kids knew I was adopted. I didn't have many conversations about it at all. It was just, I felt a little different. And I was also different because my adoptive mom died when I was 12. So by the time I was in high school and involved in drama and music and stuff, I was, it was like four years later. Oh, (laughs) I was in a different place. I was very involved in what I was doing. I didn't spend a lot of time daydreaming about my birth family. Mm -hmm. But then when I got to college, I took my first year, I took a creative writing class. And one of our assignments was to imagine where we would be in four years after we got out of college and what we would be doing. And that gave me a great opportunity to let my imagination go. And I, I imagined that I had moved to New York, gotten a job as a social worker, and that I had used what I learned as a, as a person doing social work, work in New York I thought I would develop the skills to be able to find my birth family, but I I did eventually. I ended up living near New York, and that's when I, as a uh, older, uh, as a an adult in my in my thirties, we moved close to New York City, and I started going in. And then I joined an adoptee support group after I read Florence Fisher's book, The Search for Anna Fisher.
0: You know what? What? It was recommended by a birth mom. A birth mom I talk to regularly every Saturday.
1: And she told
0: me she's read that book three times. And she said she loves that book. She says, you'll love it. Get that book. Her voice is so strong. You know, a writer having, like, you knowing their voice, right, is, like, so important to a book. and. I feel like her voice is so strong. Her words are just like, "Wow," you know. So I just have to say that. <laughs> I recommend that book to anybody. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's just wonderful.
0: I do want to go and back. That, I want. I do want to go back just a little bit and say, I'm. You know, I'm sorry that you lost your your mom, at the, mm-hmm. especially at, at at an early age. Right. Yeah. I didn't mean to break your stride, but you were talking That's about okay. being in New That's York. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't like saying this, but it's true. But my mother's death was a relief to me because she had paranoia. She saw a psychiatrist regularly and back in those days in the in the forties, early fifties, there was like I remember that she she had a cocktail every afternoon late afternoon like 5 or 5 30 before my dad would get home and they would eat dinner together with me if if he wasn't on a business trip and she had to take a medicine I'm trying to think which one it was but it was a med- she had a heart condition and she had to take a medication and she took it with a cocktail mm. which uh, you know a cocktail is not like a beer it's, right. it's pretty it's strong alcoholic content and and i think it, it, doctors were just crazy then to do that because they had no concept of of alcohol being dangerous to mix with drugs but she was a prime example of how that happened mm. and so life with with her was quite challenging, and it was challenging for her as well because she was she was in her early 40s when they adopted me, and she had no prior experience with children, and I was not the most docile kid on the block by a long shot. And she had she had a lot. You know, I was not a piece of cake to raise. Mm. She suffered a lot and I suffered a lot because I just didn't meet her expectations. She thought I should be an A-plus student and if I came home with A-minuses or a B-plus, she'd get ticked off and say, why didn't you study harder? Mm. And I just felt like nothing nothing I could do would satisfy her or please her. And so as a result, my and my father was very... He was pretty laid back, and and he always m- helped me understand that that what I decided to do with my life, who I became, et cetera, was needed to be motivated inside me, not outside. It sounds like your story parallels
0: Florence Fisher's story to some extent it does yeah. yeah so i could see where that would influence you because that's kind of what you were yep were saying that it, after it, you read that book you then decided was galvanized.
1: yeah yeah hmm so so well, i started searching yeah <laughs> and with the help of alma meetings i went into new york I guess it was one Saturday a month and attended meetings and met other people. And I had a fantasy that I think a lot of people had in those days that I would just end up sitting next to my birth mother at an Alma meeting. And that was so crazy. It didn't happen. But it it showed how how much I wanted to find her. Another thing, after my mother died when I was 12, My dad decided to buy a house. They had never owned a house. They had always lived in apartments and we were living in Barrington, which is a suburb of Chicago, about 40 miles away. And my dad and I would go food shopping every Saturday morning and get the food for the week. And I remember thinking, wouldn't it be nice if my birth mother was not married now? And (laughs) because supposedly her husband had died in an air crash over somewhere in Southeast Asia that if my dad could meet my birth mother and they liked each other and they actually ended up getting if they actually ended up getting married then I wouldn't have to go grocery shopping on Saturdays either (laughs) my mother would do it during the week or they would do it together on Saturdays you know it was just these little little strange things and I've never sat around and talked with other adoptees about our fantasies. But that would be a good, an interesting thing to do. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when you
0: embarked upon being connected to the adoption community, mm-hmm. it was like holding hands with wanting to search, right? Everything. Yeah, was, yeah it was. It was. Yeah. yeah. So tell me how that, how
1: that started off. Well, I had a lot of information because my parents had saved the court order for my adoption. They had saved a letter that the doctor that they had dinner next to in Queens, you know da da da. they had saved that. They had saved the hospital due. And so, I took that information with me and, and went to the meetings monthly. And then eventually I had some information from Spence Chapin, which I found out had taken over the records from a place called the Sophia Fund which is where I was adopted from. And that place closed around 1948. So there was no recent history about that in the, in the early 70s when I started to search. But it didn't take too long to find out that, that the records from the SOFIA Fund had been transferred to Spence. So I called Spence and made an appointment to talk with a social worker to get my background information. Some of it kind of matched what my mother had told me, but but the whole business about she knew she was going to die before I turned one was pure fantasy. I mean that that was not in the records at all. Mm-hmm. But it, it was it was just fascinating to me as a kid. Now I don't know you are probably too young to have read the Nancy Drew mysteries when you were a teenager. Does Nancy Drew sound familiar to you? Familiar. <laughs> yes, uh, it is familiar to me. <laughs> oh, okay. I think you're older than I thought you were. Oh, you don't look old enough to know Nancy Drew, but anyway, lots of people know about her. Mm-hmm. And she was this crack detective who just had a, I forget what her little car was called, but it, it had some cute name that was very liberated for a woman to drive such a car in the 40s and 50s when the woman was writing the these Nancy Drew books like crazy so you had you had your information yeah i had a lot of information mm-hmm. and that i spent i spent time at the new york library it turned out i lived on west 54th street by the back door of moma for a couple of years when i was Uh, in second and fourth grades, I just absorbed information like a sponge. And so I would see adoption stories in lots of drama and soap operas and stuff like that. And it was always close to the surface, my thinking about Mm -hmm. my birth parents. Eventually... I found a woman who I thought must have been my birth mother, and she, at that time, when I was in my late thirties, early forties, she lived. She lived on uh, West End Avenue in seventy-first or seventy-second Street. I actually, I found somebody in the movement, who in the reform movement, who who had dinner regularly at a restaurant, and I can't remember how I found out that Signa was, I, oh, I know what it was. Through a process too long for me to talk about, I was able to find a relative a, a, a relative by marriage of this woman, Simna, that that I had found. And the way I found her, sorry, it's hard for me to talk in a straight line, is, I had information indicating that my mother had been a musician and that she had studied in Paris, fallen in love with a, an American soldier there, and that he died in some kind of air accident. I think what I wrote you, I said he was in the Navy. I think it was in the Air Force, if there even was one then. So I wrote to the Army and the Air Force, you know, I wrote to military organizations. And I couldn't find anybody with his name anywhere. That was frustrating. Yeah. It, it turned out that it was a bogus name, that the name that my birth mother used when she gave birth to me was made up. And the basic identity of the woman who said she was my birth mother, or who used this woman's name as being my birth mother, that she was lying and my birth mother had an entirely different name but so as much as i sought out this woman who i thought to be my birth mother and finally found out where she lived and i spoke with her and i wrote to her eventually i i saw her because i went to eat at the place where she ate it turned out one of my friends ate dinner at this restaurant every Friday night. Um, so she I, wasn't
0: your birth mom. This woman you thought, was? yeah.
1: But I wasted years and years thinking she was, and and she was furious with me because, well, she what? It turned out she wasn't my birth mother. So she but was just I, she was just lying to you. My birth mother gave false information when i was born right she she gave herself a new name i have the feeling that she traded information with this woman i found who had so much in common with what i knew about my birth mother it blew me away that i did not want to believe that i had made a mistake i
0: just want to be clear
1: because <laughs> it like, sounds... it's very hard yeah it's like she was going along with it? I had the feeling, and this is gonna this was gonna sound strange, but I had the feeling that she and my birth mother knew each other.
2: Right.
1: And that either they knew each other because both of them were musicians in Manhattan in nineteen forty two and they were supporting themselves, each of them. And so I just I couldn't imagine that she wasn't my that this woman that I found who had so much in common with my birth mother about where she lived and what she did and how old she was, it all matched this woman I found who had been a cellist and she had played not in the New York symphony. She tried, I even found, I mean, I found such interesting information because I, I met somebody who who was musical, who was really active in the 40s and 50s, and that person knew her enough and had hung around the New York Philharmonic enough to know that she tried out for the New York Phil with Leonard Bernstein, and he told her to sight read, and she said, I'm not sight reading, I don't do that, and he said, your audition's over. So that was somebody who who knew this woman that I thought was my birth mother. Well, eventually, I found my birth mother through twenty three and me hmm. long after I had started searching years and years and years after I'd started searching. So what happened when you find
0: your real birth mother?
2: <laughs>
1: I well, I didn't find her because she had died before. Uh, the turn of the 21st century, just a couple of years before. And she was in her late 80s when she died. Mm. And the way I found her was through DNA and uh, 23andMe,
2: Mm.
1: which are, that's a household word. Those are both household words now. But they weren't even as recently as the very early 2000s. Right, you know, twenty right. three and me. I don't know what year they were founded, but what happened is in the summer of 2015, I got a note, an, an email from twenty three and me saying, "You've got a new relative." It gave me information about a person. It didn't give me identifying information, but but it said, "We, you have a, a first cousin." I was out of my mind excited, and it turned out that the person whom they identified as a first cousin was actually a first cousin once removed, which meant that this woman, this young woman, was a daughter of my first cousin. Mm-hmm. That that makes a once removed, I think, That's I'm pretty it. sure. That's right, yeah. You know that, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we communicated through 23andMe a couple of times that year, and she said, Nobody in my family has heard of any unknown children or unaccounted for children or any women who went away to have a baby, maybe. But I will do my best to find out what I can, even though I'm working very hard in school and I can't guarantee you I'm going to find anything out fast. So it was months before we communicated again, and she wrote me and said that she had been patiently waiting for her parents to agree to taking a DNA test. They finally agreed to do it. Oh, wow. And so with 23andMe, I think that's how the finding took place was with her name. And then they, they told both of us that they had contacted the other one and just left it up to us to communicate and eventually decide to meet who turned up was the dad of the woman who had who had won a membership to 23 and me in a class, a college class she was taking. She didn't know there were any adopted out people among any of her relatives, but this connected her and me because our DNAs had enough similarity to mean that we were cousins. So her dad called me one day. I was so surprised. And we became friends over the phone. He said he didn't know who might be my mother, but he had an idea. And it turned out later, he told me that when he saw pictures of me, because the people in the family young enough to be really skilled in searching on the internet had found a photograph of my family and me from October of, I think it was 2013. Oh, and he said, and there was a picture of our family on Facebook, I guess it was from ages ago. And he said, when I saw your photograph and your family and the way you were dressed, you could have been your mother. Mm. you look so much like her did he supply you, like you with a picture of her? no, not then Okay. Um, eventually I got one it wasn't too long before I got one but I didn't get it from him I got it from somebody else who had a picture of her in the family so long story short he he spoke with each of his cousins to find out if any of them had a child out of wedlock and given the child up for adoption they hadn't but now this is weird it is a confusing story and sometimes I get confused myself about it (laughs) but it turned out that someone in the family had given birth to a child and she was not married and she relinquished that child for adoption just piece by piece, it ended up that that person had been my birth mother as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I oh. had found my half sister. She was related to the cousin who called me, and and it was it just felt miraculous, mm, and I, I was overjoyed.
0: Yeah, and that would be what, then, what year was that?
1: That was around 2016. Mm-hmm. And the, the bill in New Jersey passed in 2014 in February, and it was not implemented until 2017 when adoptees could start getting their birth certificates unless their parents had said, take my name off the certificate. In which case, the adoptee still got the certificate, but the birth parent's name was, was uh, inked out. Right.
0: Now let's talk about the work for years, for decades, that you were a part of in New Jersey.
1: Okay, when I started to search, I, I went to ALMA meetings in the city once a month on a Saturday. And then I got involved with some ALMA groups here in New Jersey. And then the woman who was leading ALMA New Jersey at that time I think she moved to another state. She wanted to take a break from from doing what she'd been doing with Alma, and she asked me if I would fill fill her job responsibilities, and I said, sure. And I had been already going to Trenton, talking with social workers, and meeting new jersey adoptees around the state there were a variety of groups at that time that were not connected with alma as well as some groups that started with alma i don't know it just it felt like it was my job to do in life you know i felt called to this work (laughs) to Mm. to change the law and so i started reading the laws. I became friends with a social worker at the time whose name is Mary Miles. She worked for DIFUS, the Division of Youth and Family Services. It has a new name now, but she worked for them. We became very good friends. So I had the opportunity to meet a lot of New Jersey adoption workers through her and through opportunities to speak at various adoptive parent education conversations because I just felt that it was it was important for people who were considering adopting a child to have an idea of the child's perspective as a person without a history. Mm. And I thought that was brilliant. And I just adored the social workers that I knew and they were so compassionate. I seldom, if ever, went to see a legislator by myself, I would try to go with a birth mother and an adoptive parent to talk about the experience from all three sides. That was really helpful because a lot of adoptive parents back then in the seven the early the seventies did not have the experience of knowing any birth parents. And so Florence had come to New Jersey, Florence Fisher, who wrote uh, The Search for Anna Fisher, had come to New Jersey at the invitation of a social worker named Rosie. She came and spoke with other social workers. It was it was a schlep for her to get from yeah you know, Upper Manhattan to Trenton, because that's a trip. It's like an hour on one side and an hour and a half on the other, so... It was an exhausting day. And so she started asking me to do those gigs and to speak because I was in New Jersey. And I was delighted to. And I met such wonderful people and made really, really good friends among the, the adoption workers in Trenton and in other you know, places around the state. Some of my closest, closest friends did that work. And... We encouraged each other, we encouraged them in their work, and they encouraged us in our searches, and they gradually became, really became advocates for adoptees having access to the truth of our origins, and it was such a blessing that they were supportive.
0: Yes. You know, your name has come up so much with guests that I have had, or will will have on the podcast because we've done recordings together and Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Suzanne Gilbert right now and Mm -hmm. she has a story that she shares by the time this recording airs Suzanne's would have already aired but she tells a story Uh about how she met you and it's just fascinating
1: right It was on a bus right from New York (laughs) And she heard me talking Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, and so yes.
0: I love that story she shares because my question to her, which is going to be my question to you, is what do you find in terms of synchronicities in your story, in your adoption journey, in your life journey, your lived experiences? Do you
1: have one to share? Oh, I was on a bus from New York to Morristown with a friend who was Russian, who had spent some time in Japan. So this woman was Russian and she spoke Russian and Japanese. And I was, I am American and I spoke English and Japanese. So sometimes we couldn't get where we wanted to go in English. And I certainly didn't know any Russian to speak of at all. (laughs) And we would talk in Japanese because we both knew more Japanese than we did about each other's languages and then this woman comes to the back of the bus because we were almost to Morristown and it wasn't real crowded on the bus by then everybody got most people had gotten off and this woman comes back to us and I can remember she was telling us as we passed Morristown Memorial Hospital on Route 24, 124 now, that she was talking about about Japan (laughs) and then we got to know each other better. And it turned out she was a doctor. Right. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's such an interesting synchronicity.
1: You don't meet every
0: day. Somebody that
1: Japanese. The other side of the world. (laughs) Yeah, but who is, by the way, adopted? Right,
0: yeah, like, right. Like,
1: come on. Yeah, that's on. something.
0: Yeah. And it was so I, I'm fascinated by synchronicities, you know. So oh, when I do. ask people in their stories. It could be growing up and then later learning something. I know in my story, for example, I lived yeah. directly across the street from probably the my favorite overall family on the block growing up and would uh-huh. later learn in reunion that that was an in-law uh, to my birth family. Yeah. No. Like it just really tripped me out when I learned that, oh. put it, put it like this. One of the, the children in that home, she was about four years, I think four years older than me, two to four years older uh-huh. than me. And she was always the one, cause I was an only child that took up for me. Like she always just happened to wow. just, take that position and somebody took my 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 rope or you know like she just was like a big sister yeah and to later learn that she was first cousins with the woman that my brother married my biological brother married her first cousin and nobody knew I mean everybody knew I was an adopted child but there was no way for this neighbor this big sister neighbor to know who I was you know like Right. <laughs> who I was biologically related to. And we still oh, just get kind of chills about that. And it's almost like something <sighs> was protecting me, you know, like just was yeah. covered through my life. I, yeah. I really believe that. So that's kind of one of my synchronicities. Maybe that's not even the right word for it, but that's what I call it like those things you later kind of learn of that coincide um, yeah. with your lived experience
1: that you never in the world would have imagined. Right. Right? Until it happened to you. And then it's, oh, wow.
0: Yeah. I really feel like you must come back. We must like have a continuation because I do have a lot of questions that I want to ask you and I do want to honor your time. Why don't we, for now, let's just maybe wrap up with what you would want to share that I haven't asked you
1: yet. (laughs) I want to share how it felt to meet and get to know members of my birth family. I'd like to talk about that. Okay, great. Yep. Thank you. And I do want to say that I hope many more adoptees will be encouraged by what you have done post search, like write a book, that's just a grabber. I mean, I I couldn't put it down. I remember the day I started reading it on a plane from New Jersey to somewhere, probably California, because I got a lot read. And then when you approached me about being on your podcast, I thought, what a brilliant thing to do. What a brilliant thing to do. And I I hope more adoptees and birth parents and adoptive parents who have experienced knowing each other way after the adoption has occurred, I think it's really important and it helps people understand why the laws need to get real Mm -hmm. about people like us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you
0: for that. And I, I agree. I think, and I think it's happening. I think there's an adoptee movement taking place. Oh yeah. Now, all over the world, yep, agree, yeah, so i I too stand for all of that, I believe in that and and I just decided you know that this is how I can give back, you know, meeting people like you through the conferences and and social media now, mm-hmm. I have ga- gained so much i've I've received so much healing and um encouragement. Mm -hmm. this is the only way I know to give back
1: I'm glad you're doing it thank Thank you. you
0: so your birth family yes
1: yeah they would rather not be public about this and so I never talked with any anybody in the media about it I understand the desire to be private I feel that the person who has found their family, their their original family, needs to honor the need for privacy on the part of, of family relatives, birth family relatives, and especially whoever was really close to either one of my birth parents. Mm-hmm. That's been a, a huge adjustment for me because I was so used to talking about this stuff day in and day out with people all over the place including the media and and i couldn't because Mm -hmm. i had committed myself one of my relatives had asked me not to share her information publicly and i said i will absolutely i will honor your wish Mm -hmm. and i do because i value knowing my birth family more than i do getting publicity about it right Yeah, so that's just one little
0: piece. The conclusion of my conversation with Pam was recorded one week after our first recording because I wanted her to tell us more about her reunion. Some of her story carries over from the week prior. I hope you enjoy her words. Okay, Pam, tell me a little bit more about what happened for you in
1: reunion. I got a phone call from my sister um, when I was in a very busy place. That there was a kind of a fair, fair for uh, nonprofits in Morris County, and it was held in the uh, Menon Arena uh, in a very large room, and there were tons of people there. I had just found out uh, two or three days before made the connection with someone from my birth family a cousin who had called me i think he probably told me that that my sister would be calling me soon but i didn't know when and so it was hard to hear her and i just had to I, there was nowhere i could escape where there wasn't you know a lot of buzz around from people so i just poked one finger as far in my ear as I could, so I could hear her. And we we talked for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And I was really, really delighted to have received that phone call and to be able to talk with her for a bit. And she has a very appealing speaking voice. And I felt like I was very close to her, you know, in in space, which I wasn't. We were a few hundred miles apart. I was just really so deeply happy that she called me. We talked a bit, and and we talked quite a bit, (laughs) given the circumstances. She asked me to not put anything about her onto social media, and I was very happy that she had trusted me enough, and I because I, th- I felt like it it showed trust that if I told her I would go along with her wish for that, that I would certainly honor it, and I would have I I think I would have done anything that sounded reasonable to me that she asked me to do because i was so pleased that i had been received nicely kindly warmly so i just had to do a, a reset from what i what i had done in the past in terms of knowing what other people did that i would tell people is If they found and if they were willing to talk with somebody from the media that I could facilitate that for them. But I didn't want them to do it unless both sides were very open to having any publicity about their reunion. And I thought, well, this is the least I can do to make it clear both to her and to myself that the comfort level of both of us was equally important in this reunion process and that if she didn't want her name out there or her picture out there as my found person that was okay with me it was fine with me because i felt so glad to be trusted by her and for her to be open with me like that because i had had some experiences of connecting people with media folks in the past before that long before that that had really boomeranged. We're being straightforward about one's relatives saying who they were or putting a picture with them, allowing a a media person to photograph the two people who had just found each other. It had been so destructive in one particular case that I swore to myself I would never do that again. I would not be a part of any kind of outing anyone against their wishes and and when when i had done it none of us knew what what was going to take place but but two sisters one in the us one in new jersey and one on the other side of the world had been invited by a talk show host to come to the studio for a taping of a show that this person did regularly, they arranged it so that the two sisters unknowingly were seated right next to each other. He, he just told the story simply and said, these women are sitting here and it's the first time in either of their lives that they've known they had a sister. So would you please say hello to each other? And this is years ago. Then the show told the sister from the other side of the world that they had her return ticket for the following day. So these sisters not only lost the time Mm. that they were serving the show's interest by being introduced on the show without knowing that was going to happen, Mm. Oh, it was just, it was such a a very deep mistake on the part of the person who ran the show. And I'm sure, I really don't believe that he had any idea that it would end up being hurtful. But the fact that, that these sisters had an hour on this TV show uh, and then maybe had time to have dinner and do something else before the the sister from the other side of the world had to go home the next day. And I thought, that's the cruelest thing, but I'm sure this guy didn't realize how cruel it would be. Mm -hmm. I hope he didn't. Anyway, so that's why I came to the position I did of definitely facing the fact that that there had to be transparency when people were going to meet each other. And they had to talk about ground rules, and they had to come to some agreement for it to be a a really fully happy experience for both of them.
0: Yeah, I can see I'm sorry,
1: it took me so long to say that. No,
0: you're fine, you're fine. I can't help but think, are there... Other family members that you met that felt that same way or differently?
1: Nobody else brought it up. I don't know whether they felt that way or not. Nobody encouraged me to come on a local show with them or anything like that. I never had to face it again because it just came up that once. And I said, I will do as you wish because I value your feelings in this situation more than anyone else's except my own. If it makes you happy, that's what I'd like to do. I got it across that that I was not going to try to change her mind.
0: You're reminding because, me oh, Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No. So I was just gonna say you're reminding me of when I opened my original birth certificate. And Mm -hmm. it was in a room full of people, family, friends, and members of the adoption Uh community. When I saw my birth mother's name on that record, I did not announce that out loud because Mm -hmm. people were filming and things like that. I didn't know if she was alive or not. And whether she was, whether she would want to remain anonymous. You know, I just remember that is important to give a person an opportunity to say yes or no, to to being right. public. Because even though I right. had made a decision to be public, that doesn't mean that all of my birth family or anybody, even adoptive family, really want to be public too.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: So what would you say yeah. has been the most rewarding thing about being connected to the adoption community?
1: I think one of the first things is what a relief it is to go to a meeting and be in a room full of people who were separated by ill-conceived laws requiring the complete severance of any relationship between parent and child. And to know that all the other people there, whether they were birth parents who had relinquished a child or they were adoptees who were searching for their birth parent, to know that everybody in that room understood how I felt in a way that I couldn't say in any other gathering of people that I would ever be in, whether it was people who had similar faith experiences or people who had similar social experiences, whether they were world travelers, whether they were quilt makers, bakers, whatever. I just knew that I felt extremely fortunate to be able to connect with other people who had similar, not identical ever, but similar experiences to mine of losing my family without any consultation with me.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, that was, yeah, say your question again because then I'll think of more things to say. (laughs) If you don't mind.
0: (laughs) What's been the most rewarding thing about being connected to the community? Yeah,
1: I, yeah. It's such a good question, and it's so important, and I think many of us would answer it the same, and many of us would answer it differently. I think once I finally was able to connect with my original family, I wanted to keep pinching myself to see if I was really alive and having this experience that I had waited so long for. My search had been inside me for decades since I was a little kid and I knew I was adopted. And I remember the first time I saw a pregnant woman that I recognized there was something different about her because she had this enormous stomach. And this is what's in Manhattan, my mother and I were walking somewhere. And I said, what's wrong with that woman's stomach? And she said, well, there's a baby inside and she's going to give birth to that baby pretty soon. And so that's what you're seeing. And then when I was in high school, I thought about who my birth parents were. I mean, who were they? You know, in those days, before this ever hit the media, as happened when Florence Fisher's book was published, and newspapers, magazines, television shows, radio folks were storming the gates to get her on you know to talk with her and to have her on their show because they realized how very deeply human this need to know the truth about ourselves is it does come through in
0: her book yes
1: absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely and i remember feeling very relieved When I read that book, before I ever started searching, and that book gave me permission to search because I realized that the feelings that I had had of needing to reconnect and make sense out of my life were perfectly normal and that I didn't need to be embarrassed or ashamed or whatever about wanting to know whom I came from. And so, I finally got my courage together and signed up with every search registry that I could find. And then, even then, within five, let's see, 2013, within a couple of years, actually, I got a hit. I only know the maternal side. Okay. I have not found anybody. I have not found my father or his side of the family, although... I did have some matches among uh, that. Some of them were repetitive because a lot of people do apply twice. You know, do send their information into more than one DNA company because if you're if you're looking for somebody who's lost to you because of adoption laws, you have to make connections with all the registries that are working on that kind of stuff because. It, you have no promise that that they're gonna that anybody's gonna know where you might have registered. You know what I mean? I do. I do. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And so you've been connected for so long with the community and done so much work. I know you have some guidance for someone brand new to the community, like someone just got results from a DNA test or just. Found some platform where adoptees are meeting and and talking and getting mm-hmm. together. What guidance would you have for someone new, brand new?
1: I would. I would encourage them to try to relax a little bit <laughs> and to think about the person on the other side of this equation that you have finally been able to solve to realize that maybe this person knows about you. Let's say we're talking about a sibling or an aunt or uncle. Maybe whoever it is that you, con- that you were connected with by the DNA company knows about you, and maybe they don't. It really, I think it really is important for people to, Take a deep breath, give themselves some time to get used to the fact that they have found someone to whom they are genetically related, to talk with a trusted friend about it or a relative, to think about the different possibilities that might be the truth. One thing they do know is that is that somebody either signed up with a DNA a DNA organization because they knew they had a missing relative out there or they were just interested in finding out their um, their history, their genetic history. It was really important to give, it, give themselves and the other person to, a little bit of time before they attempted to make contact. I don't think a relationship with a newly discovered relative is something for anybody to be ashamed about or anxious about but it certainly is normal to wonder like crazy who who is this person out there with whom i share some genetic history Mm -hmm. do they know about me do they not know about me did they sign up because they were they knew they had a rel- a missing relative, or did they sign up because they wanted to find out if they were Scottish or Irish? You know, there could be so many reasons. Does that answer your question, or not? Absolutely
0: quite? does. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate that, and I really want to honor your time. You've been gracious enough to spend two different days talking with me, and I uh-huh. I just appreciate that so much. Uh, you have so many wise words for for me and, and the audience so I guess we can wrap it up is there anything I didn't okay. ask you that you'd like to leave I think you gave me
1: lots of opportunities <laughs> to say many things that I think might be helpful to someone in, in my shoes well thank you so, so much I appreciate it it's been very encouraging to me that you are doing this and getting people out there so that others who've, who who maybe have part of the experience under their belts but haven't ever thought about searching or done anything about it, that that they would be encouraged and helped a little bit by hearing me and, and any of us in this position. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Pam. I appreciate okay. it.
1: Thank you,
2: Jennifer.
0: Having this conversation with Pam was a delight. Her gentle voice, pauses, breaths, and laughter are soothing to me. I imagine sitting across a table from her watching her smile at times as she reflects on her journey. I like how she can recall things from years past as if they happened yesterday. The mention of Florence Fisher and attending adoptee support groups in New York City makes me know how involved she was in the adoption community long before I was thinking about my original birth certificate. If there is anyone who was determined to see New Jersey change their adoption laws, it was Pam. Far too many adoptees to name know what her outstanding efforts mean to them, and often mention her name in an expression of their gratitude and appreciation. Right now, I'm thinking of Joy Fisher Griffin from episode 60 of this podcast, who continually sings the praises of Pam and NJ Care. Year after year, when it came to seeking legislative changes, Pam realized that one of the most important things to do was to involve birth parents in the process. By including their voice along with adoptees, a clearer picture began to form around anonymity, not necessarily being what birth parents desired at any time. Thank you, Pam, for having this conversation with me. Your lived experience is one example of what a meaningful and purposeful life looks like. I'm glad to know you, and your work in the community will forever be a reminder to me of what I do with each episode being a labor of love for my fellow adoptees. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word, hashtag Thank you for being here.